Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Do you ever wonder why it was that Jesus opened the Beatitudes with blessed are the poor in spirit? The Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they differ from one another textually by two specific words, in spirit. Luke's text excludes this modifier altogether. It's not even there. So why is Matthew's gospel so specific? Is admitting our spiritual bankruptcy a more significant prerequisite to receiving God's blessings than any of the others? Besides a scarcity of spirituality, poor, it could mean many things, such as a lack of humility before God, or to literally be financially bereft. As you listen to today's scripture, reflect on your own shortcomings or limitations, and we all have them. Ask yourself, which version of poor resonates with you? What exactly is it that makes a person poor? This comes from James 2, 5 to 6. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those that love him? But you dishonor the poor. She sat across from me in my office. Stranger, first time I had ever met her. And she said to me, she said, uh, so pastor, would, would you like to be blessed? And I said, yes. Then she said, I invite you, I encourage you to sell everything that you have and live a life of poverty. And I looked at her, and I think she saw the question in my eye. And she said, well, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And I thought to myself, wow, that, that, is, that line in the, in the Beatitude, that, that could be really troubling. The idea being that we somehow hold up poverty as something that should be strived for, but yet something that we're really not willing to do. And those that are in poverty, we look at them and say, well, we could admire them for being poor, but we're not going to help them at all in their poorness, in their poverty. So that's why, to me, at times, to be able to go to the Gospel of Matthew and read the Beatitudes there, it is far more easy. Because there it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so immediately, I can spiritualize it. I don't have to take it literally. And as Janelle mentioned, there are many individuals who will read the text in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the way they get around it without having to address the issue of poverty is simply by saying that this is a spiritual sense of poverty. And what that means 
is those who are poor in spirit have a sense of humility. They have this sense of dependence on God. They are the ones who walk around and say, I can do nothing of my own. The only way I can survive is by complete and total dependence upon God. And that's a lot easier to deal with than to literally just look with the Luke text where it says, blessed are the poor. But the reality is, that word poor, we just can't simply walk away from. It's there. It's in the text. And what's hard is, with us living in the 21st century, it's 2,000 years ago that this was spoken. It's a different time. It's a different culture. We live in a Western culture. They lived in the Mediterranean in the Eastern culture. So all of that has to be understood if we are to at least come to a closeness of trying to figure out what was Jesus really talking about when he uttered the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, first of all, one of the things I learned this week is that to be poor in the ancient times is not the same as today. We have what is called a poverty level. I don't know how they came up with it, but there is a, a certain amount of money that is required, they say, to live in a household of four. And if you don't make that amount of money, then you are below the poverty line. Well, for the ancients, that didn't exist. The ancients believed that as long as you had the basic necessities of life, shelter, food, clothing, you were not poor. Now, life may be hard for you, but you're not poor. So if you were a tradesman, if you worked a day job where every day, literally, you had to go out and try to find work, but you had enough to be able to take care of your basic needs, you were not considered poor. The poor was left for a different distinction. And it actually has two ideas linked with it. Number one is the economical. If you could not provide for yourself or those around you food, shelter, and clothing, then you were poor. Because your only option at that point was to rely upon the benevolence of other people, which meant that what you had to be able to do was to beg. So the beggars in the Bible are the poor. They are economically at a disadvantage compared to everyone else in society. Now, that's one aspect of it. But there's another aspect of poor that we in the 21st century have a hard time relating to. And that is, to be poor meant that you had lost your sense of honor. Now, we live in a society that is until recently, been very unfamiliar with this idea of honor and shame. We tend to be a society that is more about guilt and forgiveness. But for the Mideastern and for the Far East and the Ancient East, for them, poverty was linked to honor. 
your sense of who you were was tied in directly to how other people perceived you in your society. Individualism was not as rampant as it is today. Who you were was tied with the people that you were around. Your name meant something. They didn't really care what your first name was. What was important was your last name. That gave you a sense of identity. That gave you standing within the community. That's why it was so important to preserve your name. Because by preserving that, by keeping it polished and untainted, you were seen as being honorable. But the poor had lost that. They had lost their standing in society. They were seen as shameful. That has huge implications. For us today to be economically impoverished, that is huge. But for them, what was worse than that was losing your sense of standing in the community because that's who you were. And if you lost that, you lost everything. Your chances of finding work, no. Nah. Your chances of getting married, probably not. Your chances of being able to survive and live a fruitful life, no. Because now you were alone. And to be alone was your death sentence. You hoped you could beg for enough money to get you by. That was it. So when Jesus comes along and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, not only then, I imagine those original listeners thought about the beggars, the poor, true poor, the economic, but also these were those individuals who were considered to be shameful. These were the people that you really didn't want anything to do with. And what Jesus is actually saying in this line is kind of an oxymoron. You could actually translate it, honorable are those who have lost their honor. Think about that. Jesus comes along, and when everyone looks at these individuals as nobodies, as the outcasts, Jesus comes along and says, those individuals that have lost their honor are actually very honorable. Now that makes sense, that if what Jesus was doing when he spoke this line is Jesus was not speaking to the multitude. Jesus wasn't speaking to the crowds in general. More than likely, Jesus was talking to his followers. And the individuals who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, they specifically were talking about those in the early church. The early church, in its first, when it first started coming about, was primarily consisted of the Jewish individual. They were Jews. And they kept those practices and those rituals. But as they begin to separate themselves and follow the teachings of Jesus, things begin to shift. And with that shift, they lost connection with their family. 
Now again, think about what happens. If your whole identity is wrapped around your family and you choose to go against something that the majority of your clan, your tribe, your family holds to, they're not going to take that very kindly. So to be a follower of Jesus, more than likely what ended up happening is you were cut off financially from your family and with that, you lost your sense of standing in the community. You had become dishonored. You were now to be shamed. And the writer of the Gospel of Matthew says, no, 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 no. What you are doing is a hard risk that we understand you're taking. But you will be honored. Now again, this idea is really hard for us because as a Western society, we tend to emphasize more of a guilt culture than we do a shame culture. One individual spoke about this, and I think she does a wonderful job in explaining that. Her name is Ruth Benedict. She's an anthropologist. And this is how she describes the distinction between a guilt culture and a shame culture. She says the following, In a guilt culture, you know you are good or bad by what your conscience feels. Do you hear the individualism there? You, in your conscience, discern what is right or wrong, and if you go against that, you feel guilt, but that guilt comes from within yourself. Now, contrast that to a shame culture. In a shame culture, you know you are good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honors you or excludes you. In a guilt culture, people sometimes feel they do bad things. In a shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel they are bad. Until recently, we have primarily been a guilt culture. But then something came along that began to shift this. And for that you can thank social media. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, all of these different platforms have created an environment where we are becoming more and more of a society that is looking at things as either honor or shame. We are more and more becoming where we want to belong to a community. Not a community that necessarily meets in person, but a community that lives out somewhere. If you're on Instagram, it's really important that you display who you are. In fact, you are continually on display. I don't personally understand it, but there are many individuals who, whenever they're having an experience in the world, they're taking an image of themselves. 
and then they put that up online. They're letting the world know, this is who I am. Now, personally, I think at times that might be better than having to go through what I did growing up, and that was you ended up being invited to someone's home, and they displayed their life to you from their vacation by making you look at these slides of pictures. Now they're online all the time for us. I was talking to a young woman the other day, and I asked her about social media and its impact upon her life. I found it fascinating. She said, I asked her, I said, do you ever feel this sense of shame from social media? She thought about it and she said, well, to be honest with you, it does bother me when someone blocks me or befriends, defriends me. And I wonder what happened. Because now, instead of being included in that, now you are actually excluded. And more and more young people, their sense of identity is being wrapped up in if they belong to this culture that in reality doesn't really even exist, other than just being numbers. I asked her also about what it's like when she sees some of her friends supporting a certain movement. And she says she internally feels the pressure to be a part of that. Because if she doesn't post or repost that meme, then what does it do? Does that mean that other people look at her suspiciously? This phenomenon isn't unique to just this one individual, though. David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, says the following. College campuses are today awash in moral judgment. Many people carefully guard their words, afraid they may transgress one of the norms that come, have come into existence. And here's what's amazing, is they, these norms, they come and go quickly. There is no standard sense of right or wrong. It's like riding a wave. It comes and it goes, it comes and it goes, and you've got to keep up with it. Those accused of incorrect thought face ruinous consequences. When a moral crusade spreads across campus, many students feel compelled to post in support of it on Facebook or other social media within minutes. If they do not post, they will be noticed and they will be condemned or canceled. It's all about showing how woke you are. It's all about showing that you fit in, that you are one of them. Well, I imagine that a portion of you here or watching online, you could look at it and say, well, yeah, I feel sorry for them, but I'm not on social media, so that doesn't have anything to do with me. But ask yourself, how often do you compromise a little bit of who you are so that you fit in?
that you belong. As individualistic as we are as a society, we still want this sense of that we fit in. That's important to us. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are. The problem is, is that we become like this little thing out in the ocean is just bobbing and weaving and it is being thrown about by whichever the way the waves are taking it. There's no sense of direction in life. And so when I go back to this beatitude, and if what I'm proposing to you is in the ballpark, then what it's really saying is your real honor in life is not wrapped up in what other people think. It's something that comes from within yourself when you are true to yourself. Each of us, to a certain degree, need a North Star. Something that will guide us. Something that will compel us in our words and in our actions. Something where we're able to say, you know what? This is where I stand. These are my boundaries. And if it means that I don't fit in anymore, that's okay. And here's what's exciting about that, is these early followers of Jesus, for them, Jesus' teachings was that North Star. And they came together in community. It wasn't about everyone having to be the same or everyone having to conform. It was about encouraging each other, empowering each other to live a life worthy of life. And that's what we have the privilege and opportunity to do today. As we grow older, it's easy to feel as if our life doesn't matter as much. It's easy to feel that we're being overlooked because a younger generation has a different way of looking at life that may be foreign to us, that we don't understand completely. But those young people, they are looking for direction. Now, if we who are older than them come across as, look, we'll tell you what's right. Just listen to us. And if we're critical of them, if we're judgmental of them, they won't listen. But if we will first listen to them, Try to understand them. You know what will happen? 
they'll slowly open up a little bit of their life to you. And don't get overly eager when they open that door a little bit that you go in there and just tell them what to do. Just be there for them. They have to find their own North Star. But you can model through your life what that North Star looks for you. And if it's tied into the teachings of Jesus, this is when it gets exciting, folks. It will be a life based upon love for yourself and then true love and compassion for others. So I encourage you today and in the days to come to set aside just a small little bit of time and reevaluate where your North Star is. What it is that dictates how you live your life. And by doing that, I believe you will find the truth within that line. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at BeatitudesChurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.